This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. What happened? Democrats across the nation waking up with a nasty hangover after last night's elections. The progressive agenda absorbing big losses, and not just in Virginia. Measures to expand voting rights in New York lost. A proposition to end the Minneapolis Police Department went down. And in deep blue New Jersey, the incumbent Democratic governor hanging on to the slimmest of leads. Is this a wake-up call ahead of the 2022 midterms? Is the Biden agenda in deep trouble? We will go in-depth. Also, we'll go up to the Bay Area, where vaccination rates are high and COVID restrictions have been strict, but infections, once again, on the rise. Younger kids now cleared to get their COVID vaccinations, but there are a lot of hesitant, anxious parents who won't be rushing to the pediatricians. We're going to talk with a couple of them not yet sold on the idea. And we've been told for years drinking in moderation, you know, like a glass of red every night, is actually good for us, promotes longevity. Well, maybe not. Yeah. Uh, some people think it's like five a night, but that's not definitely <laughs> You'll not live good. forever. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we start, though, with, uh, well, how else to put this? It was an ugly election night for Democrats. A.B. Stoddard is a columnist and editor at Real Clear Politics. A.B., thanks for being back with us. This is uh, a bad, it was a bad night. It's a bad day for the Democrats. What did they do wrong? Well, uh, it's interesting because progressive groups have come out uh, immediately to say that uh, Terry McAuliffe was pretty much the wrong candidate and they, if the party had nominated someone uh, more to the left, um, that it would have energized more voters and on and on. And the progressive agenda um, is a loser for Democrats. Uh, progressives don't make up a majority of the voters in this country and they do not make up a majority of the voters in the Democratic Party. The party is going to have to take a long look at the data coming out of New Jersey and uh, Virginia and all the other places where they lost. Uh, and they're gonna have to, to really dig in to find out why people who voted for Joe Biden last year um, voted for Republicans. And they have to look at their losses among working class voters and blue collar areas, Latino voters. They really have to dig in to these numbers. Um, and to say it was a fluke uh, is to really imperil, them, imperil themselves further next year when they are set to have a terrible uh, year in the midterms uh, in 2022. What about Glenn Youngkin? What about the Republican side of this? Maybe the answer and part of it is that people like Republicans not named Donald Trump like Republicans used to be. Right. I mean, I think it's really interesting to see how much Donald Trump, I mean, I'm sorry, Glenn Youngkin, uh, and Jackson Riley really ran up uh, good Republican numbers all around the states in New Jersey and Virginia uh, doing better than, than Donald Trump had. Uh, I think that this is true, but it's, it's also a question of how much he's going to dominate the primary process in 2022 next year. It'll be different for federal candidates uh, where he wants to dominate those races and be part of the discussion. And they'll have to answer questions about whether Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader in the House, should be speaker. Um, they will be far more up against it uh, than Glenn Youngkin, uh, who successfully uh, in the primary sort of snuggled Trump enough. Uh, and then in the general election, kept his distance, didn't have him come there um, and came off as a really sort of post-Trump candidate. It will be, again, um, I think it's a successful recipe for the party. I don't know they can pull it off at the federal level. So here's your uh, opportunity to move into the Oval Office. If you're President Biden, what do you do now? 
Well, I thought all along that Joe Biden was hitting um, remarkable job approval in a polarized nation that's usually split kind of 46, 46 with independence on the edge um, at 52 and 53% in May and early June and all through the winter and spring because he was focused on COVID and the economy and only COVID and the economy. COVID's the economy and the economy is COVID. The numbers for Democrats and Joe Biden on, on the wrong track, right track of this country, the direction of this country on the economy are terrible, even though there has been significant growth. Um, the fact that the, the pandemic surged this summer with the Delta variant, and then he had a, a series of other things where it looked like uh, he wasn't getting the pandemic under control and that the, ec the economy was going to stall again. Frightened voters, they are not feeling the $1,400 checks they received from an already passed rescue plan last winter, not the one they're fighting over in Congress now. Joe Biden has to focus again on his pandemic and getting the economic engine of this country roaring again, or they really um, won't have a chance to be discussing all this other stuff. Uh, come the elections next year. A.B. Stoddard, columnist, editor at Real Clear Politics. So coming up, where do Democrats go now? You're listening to KNX In-Depth. Along with Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Feldman. Still to come, an attorney for the armorer on the set of the Alec Baldwin movie Rust, claiming the gun which ultimately killed the film's cinematographer might have been sabotaged somehow. That's a, a theory that he has. Before that, we'll hear from two parents who will not be rushing out to get their young kids vaccinated against COVID. Right now, though, the recriminations among disappointed Democrats over last night's election drubbing have already begun, whether it was too much or too too little of a leftward turn, voters do not seem to be fans of an aggressively progressive agenda. Maria Cardona is a Democratic strategist and CNN political analyst. She is a former communications director for the Democratic National Committee and senior advisor to Hillary Clinton's 2008 campaign. Maria, thanks for being with us. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So, uh, wow, it was a, uh, to say it was a terrible night for Democrats is, is an understatement. Uh, <laughs> where do they go from here? What lessons do they need to learn? And are they capable of executing whatever those lessons are? Uh, yes, I do believe they are capable. But look, I think that one of the big lessons from last night is that Democrats actually have to demonstrate that the uh that what voters gave them in the elections last year that they are worthy of uh right they have to prove that the faith that voters put in them they can use to actually deliver what they promised on and i think that was a big reason why voters just looked at the democratic party writ large at the national level uh terry mcauliffe is very connected to the national democratic party and essentially made a judgment that they haven't proved that they could do anything. And I think that that was why uh, President Biden's uh, numbers went down precipitously in the last couple of months. I think it was a sort of a coming together of the perfect storm, if you will. I think moving forward, Democrats will focus on getting things done. That's what you have been hearing today all day from senators and members of Congress, that they are going to find a way to pass both the infrastructure bill as well as reconciliation. They're going to show the American people uh, that the policies that are popular, uh, regardless of whether Republicans want to try to 
characterize uh, those policies as being too too liberal or too progressive. They are very popular. They just had uh, Democrats just had nothing to talk about, and so therefore McAuliffe really had not a whole lot to talk about. But I also think he missed an opportunity to talk about what he would do in Virginia. And Youngkin was brilliant in painting himself as a true moderate, while at the same time uh, playing footsies and giving sort of dog whistles to Trump's most extreme base that came out to vote for him in droves. So does it worry you then that that could now be the playbook for the Republicans? And if not enough gets done from your side, well, now they know how to win again. And in 2022, we already have the probably what we saw this time. Some of this is baked in where you you, you tend to vote against the people in power because we right. do this thing where we go back and forth anyways. Right. Yes, it, it terrifies me. Absolutely. And, and, it, and it should terrify all Democrats. And hopefully that will be motivator enough to make sure that we are able to get things done. And I think it's also important to talk about the democratic base or the coalition, as I like to put it, of African-American voters, Latinos, uh, Asian-American voters, who, you know, for the most part, and we're still getting the numbers that are coming in, um, they, they showed up for Terry McAuliffe, but they did not show up in the numbers that um, showed the kind of enthusiasm that they had last year for President Biden. And again, yes, that's natural. You know, it's it's exhausting to keep up that kind of enthusiasm. The party in power normally does not do well in elections uh, for Virginia and New Jersey governors. And so we also should remember that it, history was always, was always against McAuliffe winning and even um, the the New Jersey and even Democrats winning in the New Jersey governorship. And so um, for, for Murphy and so, you know, for McAuliffe to be able to have to have done it again, because he was one of the few ones that has done it recently. Um, it's hard to capture lightning in a bottle twice. OK, so you're president, yeah. you're President Biden, let's say. What do you do now? And this is a question we asked our guest in the last segment. What right. does the president do going forward? He has to make sure that his Demo that Democrats on the Hill are able to pass his agenda. And I, 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 I truly believe that both McAuliffe as well as Biden all assumed, and frankly, most Democrats assumed that this would have gotten done by now. And, and what we're seeing now is the backlash of voters when they realize that all of this faith that they put into the um, into the president and Democrats in the House and in the Senate up until now has not proven to have been worth the effort. Okay, but how, but how does he that's get what we need to change? Okay, but how does he get the Democrats to get their act together and pass his agenda when you have these, you know, very few holdouts? And I'm talking particularly about Joe Manchin, who right. is steadfast in, it seems, thwarting whatever the president's agenda is. So how, what does he do with that? Well, you know, Biden has been talking about this special relationship that he has with Manchin for a while. And even today, he or yesterday, he kept talking about how he's sure that Manchin will come on board. I think he needs to demonstrate whatever secret sauce he has with Joe Manchin. And he should have done it before last night. But now he certainly needs to do it. And 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 he needs to make sure that it happens. And Sure, there is only so much that he can do, right? He can't wave a magic wand and make 
mansion and cinema vote the way that, that Biden wants them to. But hopefully he will be able to point to last night's loss and say, look, what you all do has repercussions. And it's not just going to be on the governorship in Virginia if we don't get our freaking act together. <laughs> Maria Cardona, Democratic strategist, CNN political analyst. Uh, Got to leave it there. Maria, thanks so much for coming on. So uh, up in the uh, the Bay Area, it's like almost everybody is, va- even the buildings are almost vaccinated. It's, it's all over the place. Vaccinations for yeah, COVID. They poked, the, they poked the bridge. Yeah, big needle. Yeah, everything is vaccinated. Uh, they're good at masks. They're good. But yet the infection rate now going back up. What's going on? And this is KNX In-Depth along with Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson. Well, go ahead. Have that glass of red wine with dinner. Yes, yeah. I will. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but, but you know, we were told <laughs> that it's probably good for your heart and drinking alcohol, you know, in moderation, promotes longevity, which are all good things, of course. Well, new research is now suggesting that that advice could have been all wrong. Don't know if I'm going to stop, though. So what does it matter? You know, take a walk, exercise, do all that stuff. Yeah. Right now, though, San Francisco, an impressive 81% of all the residents there have got at least one COVID vaccine. Uh, in the Bay Area counties, neighboring counties, vaccine rates equally high, as is adherence to mask wearing and COVID restrictions in general. So then why are cases suddenly on the rise again? Dr. Andrew Neumer, professor of population health and disease prevention at UC Irvine, uh, back with us. Doctor, thanks for talking to us again. So from our vantage point down here, looking up there, theories as to what's going on? Well, happy to be on KNX again. Uh, Thank you for having me. It's, you know, we're seeing this not only in the Bay Area, but we're seeing this in in European countries, which also have excellent vaccination rates in uh, the Netherlands and in Denmark. Uh, We're we're just not at uh, that magical herd immunity level yet. And so uh, there's going to be an uptick as the weather gets cooler and as the cumulative effect of a transmission among kids uh, starts to percolate through the population, uh, kids being back in school, of course, this academic year. And, uh, you know, we're gonna see uh, more cases uh, and I expect uh, before too long in Southern California as well. But of course, I guess the key question that people want to have answered is, are we talking about uh, primarily those who are unvaccinated uh, accounting for this uptick, or are we seeing more and more people who are fully vaccinated, maybe even boosted, uh, who are testing positive? And are we talking about just testing positive or, or are we talking about symptomatic disease? Well, uh, those that, those are excellent questions. The, I mean, the, the, the confounding between testing positive and symptomatic disease has been you know, with us since day one, and I've been kind of bemoaning that for a long, a long time. I mean, we, what we call a case is actually a positive test, and so it's not always a symptomatic disease. And so, uh, you know, with breakthrough cases, we're going to see, and there are breakthrough cases among among what we're seeing er- everywhere, but the breakthrough cases do tend to be milder. So we're going to see more of these cases that are actually positive tests that aren't uh, severe because the vaccines are, are doing their job even when there's a breakthrough case, uh, a case among a vaccinated person. Um, and, you know, I, I certainly recommend uh, all the KNX listeners who uh, have received the vaccine but not a booster to, to avail themselves of boosters if, as long as they're eligible. 
because it, it, it seems like it just takes uh, an additional shot to seal the deal uh, with, with this uh, virus and, and these vaccines, uh, potentially even more than one additional shot. But I mean, vaccinated people are having better outcomes. Um, we're seeing uh, cases, you know, much higher case rates. I was looking at some data from the Bay Area before this appearance. You know, we're seeing continually much higher case rates among the unvaccinated. So uh, it's it's a sort of a little of of each of the phenomena that you mentioned in your question. We can probably expect more of a rise through the winter, through the holidays, more mixing, right? But nothing like what we are used to seeing when we talk about surges and, and that kind of stuff. That's right. I mean, I'm expecting more cases uh, throughout the winter. I'm expecting more cases here in Southern California. Uh, not Nothing like last winter, thank, thank goodness. Uh, less mortality uh, and uh, be, because of vaccines, especially... Uh, now with uh, kids five to eleven being uh, or, uh, authorized, and not, not that, those, that those were a source of major mortality, but the, but they play a role in community transmission. Okay, very, uh, but, I, I, I want to just get in because we're going to run out sure. of time. A, a quick question: uh, In our next segment, we're going to be talking to some mothers who are uh, not particularly anxious at the moment to get their kids, their small kids, vaccinated. Uh, they want to see more results. They want to see all kinds of things. What would you say to those? mothers? Well, uh, that's a great question. You know, uh, the, the kids who are eligible for vaccine are five and up, so it's not too small, but I, I understand some people are reluctant. As an epidemiologist, I would certainly encourage them to vaccinate their kids. I think it can play a role in protecting the whole family. Uh, I am against an, uh, any child being vaccinated without parental consent. So, I want those moms to know that we epidemiologists are on their side in terms of, you know, respecting the, per, the parental role and that the FDA and the CDC have poured over the trial data um, and found that these vaccines are safe and can play a role in, you know, preventing COVID spread throughout the whole household. Dr. Andrew Neumer, Professor of Population Health and Disease Prevention at UC Irvine. And as I just said, we will talk to those mothers uh, coming up. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Well, starting this morning, doses of Pfizer's COVID vaccine available for young children between the ages of 5 to 11. While some parents have been waiting months for the opportunity to vaccinate their young kids, there are plenty more who are hesitant about the idea. Vaccination effort for young kids will likely be more complicated than it was in some aspects for the adults. There are worries about possible side effects from the vaccines in young kids. There are debates about how necessary the vaccinations are when COVID cases in general have not been as severe for young kids. So we have now with us two parents on in depth to talk about their own hesitations. Jillian Williams is a nurse in Southern California and mom to four kids, three of whom are old and already vaccinated. She has uh, worries about getting her eight-year-old second grader vaccinated. And Deborah Kaplan, who is an educator and does not want to get her 12-year-old sixth grader vaccinated. Both of you, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Jillian, let, thank you. Let, Great to be here. Jillian, let, let's start uh, with you. Uh, you're a medical person. You're in the medical profession as a nurse. Uh, you're, you're obviously not anti-vaccination because uh, you got other kids, right, who are vaccinated. Uh, what's the concern about your eight-year-old? 
Um, yeah, uh, my eight-year-old's younger and very a healthy, healthy child. And I just, I feel like I'm not right, ready for that. I want to wait. I want to see how things unroll. And I think that the issue for me comes down to more about my comfort as a parent and making that choice for us when we're ready versus the idea of a mandate and it being forced upon us before we're comfortable with it or if and when we're comfortable with it. And when you go through that in your head, what's the difference between the eight-year-old and the other older kids? I mean, is it a huge age gap? Is that the the child is younger Um, that has a lot to do with this or, or, or what is it? I mean, somewhat. She's six years younger than my next my next youngest child. Um, my two older children also. It's a little more complicated in our family. So um, their father and I are um, we have a little bit of differing views on it. Um, we're uh, divorced, and he felt very strongly about them getting it, and both of them were on board with it and really wanted it as well. So I felt like at that point they were old enough. And also when that vaccine became available to them, I mean, we were still dealing with a lot of collateral damage. I mean, it's, it's complicated. It's just not black and white. So there were a lot of reasons, but at the end of the day, I really felt like, you know, the decision kind of was made. Everyone played a role in that decision with the knowledge that we had. And so that, you know, that was what what happened. I mean, if, if I really had a choice, maybe right now, I don't know if I would have been as comfortable or willing to just allow my older children to go ahead and get vaccinated. I, I'm a little bit, you know, kind of like it it was a little bit out of my hands in a way. You're Um, vaccinated, right? Or no? I am. I am vaccinated. Um, Again, that was not an easy decision for me. And Mm -hmm. I really had to weigh a lot of different things to, to come to that choice. Um, I'm not excited about the idea of having to now be mandated to go ahead and get a booster. Um, I really hoped that the vaccine would turn things around. I really believed, okay, we get vaccinated, we go back to our normal life, we go back to, you know, our children being free and right. unmasked in school, and and none of that's really happened. Okay, Julian, stay with us, uh, and let's bring Deborah Kaplan into the conversation. Deborah, is is your uh, and and again, so that people know, you have a twelve-year-old, uh, right, who's in sixth grade. Um, Correct. Do you, okay. Do you have uh, an objection to the vaccine uh, for children of your child's age? Period. Is it an objection to uh, mandates? W- what is your your issue? Well, there are a couple of things there. Um, I mean, I have similar feelings to Julia. I'm not a fan of the mandates. Um, but, and ultimately, you know, I'm, I'm vaccinated. Um, and you know, my daughter just turned 12 a few weeks ago and I'm just not comfortable with giving her this and it being mandated and forced on her. And ultimately for me, there's two undisputable points. There's no long-term safety data on these vaccines. It doesn't exist. And the vaccine manufacturers have 0% liability for anything that happens. Um, So, you know, how, what, how is that, you know, if these vaccine companies are not liable, what is their incentive uh, and motivation to make it safe. Um, 
you know, and if you look at some of the, and I did this research, you can Google all of this information, but it took the polio vax 45 years to come to the market. It took the measles vax 46 years and hep B, which is the most recent, it's only 17 years for it to come to market. So but this it, is but an is emergency. That, but I'm curious though, Deborah. I mean, is, isn't, yeah. is, is some of that though, because you know science has improved, technology has improved, and so uh, I mean it took it took a long time for smallpox uh, vaccines to to be available because it was yes, it among did. the first, right? So I mean, could that be the the issue? Uh, not so much that the COVID ones are inferior in some way because of their lack of longevity, but because it just took longer on the other ones because the technology wasn't there. Mm, I don't. I don't know if that's that. I just, I got, I'm just going to, you know, going back to there's no long-term safety data on these vaccines and I'm not going to, if my daughter chooses to put that in her body, look, when she was born, I really wanted to pierce her ears. And I know it seems minuscule, but I said to myself, you know what, it's her body and her life. And when she wants to pierce her ears, she can go ahead and do that. And yet she still hasn't done that. Now, when it comes to this vaccine, um, you know, if she said to me, mom, I really want to get it, then we would be talking about that, but she doesn't want to get it. And, and it has nothing to do with what I've said to her. It has to do with not wanting that in her at this moment. Um, and I support that. All right, Deborah, hang on with us for just a, a few minutes here. And Jillian as well, uh, two Southern California moms here with a sixth grader and a second grader continuing the discussion with both of you on the show in just a couple minutes. We're back on KNX In-Depth. Mike Simpson and Charles Feltman. COVID vaccination rates for teenagers in this country haven't been really that great. By the end of the summer, less than 50% of eligible adolescents and teens between the ages of 12 and 17 years old had been fully vaccinated. So we already knew that vaccinating younger people was going to be a challenge. So the effort underway to vaccinate some of the youngest, the 5 to 11 age group, and uh, two parents remain with us here on the show, Jillian Williams, mother of an 8-year-old uh, second grader, and Deborah Kaplan, mother of a 12-year-old sixth grader. Uh, again, both of them uh, not uh, fans of, of this idea for, for these kids. Um, Jillian, Deborah left us off saying no long-term data uh, for the kids. But, I mean, they did go through volumes of the information we have all the way up the scientific chain that we're familiar with now. And this panel of experts yesterday was saying, and they took pains to say, look, we're parents and we're grandparents, and we have people in this age range, this group, uh, we're going to give the shots to them. D does that not change the calculus at all, you know, parent to parent, because they've got skin in the game? Yeah, no, we all have skin in the game, and we're all just trying to do our best to do what's right by our children. I, I believe that, you know. I, I just feel like our children are with the lowest risk group and they've sacrificed so much already. I, I just, I don't know. It's like, we're, we're, we're using them to, to save, you know, all these other people who have the choice to go get vaccinated themselves to protect mm -hmm. themselves and keep themselves safe. So why, you know, why do I have to further succumb my child to, to more of this? when mm -hmm. they're they're safe they're they're doing okay i i don't i it doesn't align with me and i'm not comfortable with it and definitely not comfortable with the mandate 
Okay, D- uh, Deborah, I, I think I heard you sort of agree. There were a couple uh, mm's, uh, yeah, yeah, with what Jillian was saying. But, 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 but <laughs> well, there's such good points. Okay, but, good but, points. But, let, but but let me let me throw this out and 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 see what you think of it. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, yes, it is true, uh, and we've had countless experts on on this program from all over the world, uh, and they all are in agreement that uh, for young children in the five to eleven year old set, uh, they do get infected, but yeah, they they tend to have either no symptoms or minor symptoms. But, you know, you still have in this country uh, a couple of hundred kids who died, uh, others who are suffering from what they call long-haul COVID, and it's unknown what uh, effects it's going to have on those kids as they go through their lives. And what the, the doctors and other experts that we've had on this show have said is, you know, there's a tiny risk, as there is with all vaccines, for a negative effect, but they say the risk, as small as it might be for young children, is still greater than the risk from the vaccine. Deborah? Mm. Well, <clears throat> that's that's uh, interesting. My Both my children did get COVID. They had COVID back in, I think it was January. Um, I'm also divorced. My, my ex uh, is on the same page with me and a little bit more you know, diligent about this, um, against this, um, both my kids, my daughter lost her sense of taste and smell, and they've had no issues or adverse reactions. They're both very healthy, knock on wood children. Um, and so I get it and I hear what you're saying and I hear what everybody else is saying, but I should be able to make the decision for my family and my child and not be mandated to have this put on me. And if this comes to play where, you know, they're mandating all of us. Um, I know lots of other moms and I'm not one to be a spokesperson, but there's a lot of moms at my daughter's school who don't want to, don't want to vaccinate, um, at this time. And they want to pull their kids and homeschool and have me teach them. So, you know, I'm not the only one on, I, I obviously is Jillian as well. Uh, sorry, Julia. Um, but Jillian, yeah, Jillian, sorry. I just That's don't okay. feel that, um, you know, this should be somebody else making this decision for my child. Have you taken it out, you know, mentally all the, through the steps uh, to maybe the homeschool approach? I mean, are you willing to go with, if there are consequences, places that, you know, your, your kid can't go anymore or things they can't do because if there are mandates around, I mean, have you taken it to that conclusion and, and thought about what that would be like? Oh, yes. I've gone both sides. Um, my sister's vaccinated her daughter who just turned 12. And she's like, what if, you know, it goes bad and she gets, God forbid, my daughter, something happens to her. And I said, well, what if something happens to your daughter because you vaccinated her? I mean, there's, you know, I've, I've, I've weighed out both sides of it. And, you know, from my research, an average time it takes to bring a vaccine to market is 10 to 12 years. So if, you know, we are in a better position, of course, it's an emergency and, this has been a horrible, is still a horrible thing happening to all of us. Um, just not comfortable with that. I'm curious, uh, Julianne, uh, both you and Deborah have raised uh, often this uh, mandate uh, issue, uh, which clearly is an irritant to both of you. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. wondering if, if the mandate notion were off the table, if nobody ever said a word about mandating right. anything, if that would have a, a major impact on your decision? Julian first, and if Deborah wants to tackle that, then by all means. Um, I I know for myself when I decided to get the vaccine and I thought down the line about ultimately it being available to children that 
it was not something that I was going to jump on. So I, I'm a, I was definitely always going to wait and see. Um, the mandate isn't, I'm not saying no, just because someone's telling me to do something. I don't believe that our children need to be vaccinated against this virus to keep this pandemic from exploding again. I don't, I don't think that that is necessary. We've already seen how much better we're doing. Our children are back in school. Yes, they're masked. Um, my kids can take their mask off when they're outside on the playground and stuff like that. Um, I could go into a whole thing about that, but regardless, the, our kids are doing fine. They're, you know, health wise, we're, we're, our, our numbers are moving in the right direction. So, you know, now we're looking at kind of like the numbers that we see with the flu and the effects that the flu can have and the flu, but the flu shot's not mandated. Um, mm -hmm. So are they going to get the flu shot and have they had all their other shots up to this point? Cause I mean, were the, was there a problem with those yes. vaccines? Yeah, no, we've never knock on. We've never had adverse vaccine reactions in our family. I do know people close to us who have, I've, you know, I've experienced what, what that is like for people. I do respect that other people aren't vaccinating their children with other vaccines. But I do still think it's a right and a choice because the numbers as a whole, like in our whole, you know, country, like we're predominantly are vaccinated, but there still needs to be room for people who can't get vaccinated or personally don't want to, or religiously believe that, you know, it doesn't align with them. So like, you know, we're not, we're not, you know, all these robots, we're all different people with different stories and different needs. So I think there has to be room for that. Deborah, we're going to run out of time, but um, real quick, final point to you. Well, here, here, Julia. Hey, I, I agree. I, I agree with Thank that you. big time. Um, yes. And on the same page with that. And, um, you know, I'm vaccinated. I'm fully vaccinated. <laughs> uh, my children are vaccinated, um, you know, and this is just something that is, you know, going to take some time to think about. And I what in terms of the COVID vaccine, I waited. I have 30 years in the field of education. I've seen all kinds of diseases come across my desk, children sick. And, um, you know, what I saw when I was in the classroom is I never saw transmission to child to child. I saw child to adult or adult to child. And so in the schools, I'm seeing my daughter's school, there's not a lot of COVID is happening right now. I'm not seeing kids coming, you know, testing positive. Um, and so I think moving forward, um, I agree. I think it's a bigger picture and i really think we need to look at the people who, the adults who are unvaccinated and let our children play and live and, and enjoy their their time you know unfortunately masked but uh hopefully that'll shift all right deborah kaplan there mother of a 12 year old sixth grader jillian williams mother of an eight-year-old second grader uh, thanks to you both for talking to us more in depth is on the way And we're back on KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. This morning, the attorneys for Rust Armora Hannah Gutierrez-Reed appeared on the Today Show claiming that they're afraid, and I'm quoting now, somebody intended to sabotage the set, which led to the fatal shooting of the film cinematographer. Dana Harris-Bridson, editor-in-chief of IndieWire, has been following this story closely. Uh, Dana, thanks for being here. So expand on that for us. Take us through this theory from the attorneys about uh, what they think could have happened. Okay, so if I'm to understand it, their theory that they're floating is that the uh, 
disgruntled crew members could have possibly put a live bullet among the blanks with the idea of sabotaging the production. Um, I find this, this is my personal opinion, highly unlikely um, because it presumes a number of things. It presumes that the armorer would not be able to tell the difference between a blank and an actual bullet with a projectile. Um, it presumes that the armorer would not be checking the gun before handing it to the actor. And it would presume that there was no final check of the gun before the actor could shoot it. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. What I guess is, I don't know if it is or isn't surprising, is the amount of finger pointing that has been going on in the past few days since this incident uh, occurred. Uh, you know, everything is getting leaked out. You know, one person, you know, sent a nasty letter saying that there were safety issues in the set. Another person was walking out. I mean, it's going back and forth. Uh, this isn't the way it normally is on movie sets, is it? Oh, gosh, no. No, 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 no. This has nothing to do with the way that things are usually done on movie sets. The you, you could ask any number of experienced armorers and they will all give you the exact same rundown of exactly how things are supposed to go on a set. And there is no possibility that you're going to have a live bullet somehow snuck in among the blanks that's then going to land in the gun that lands in the actor's hands. That does that, That's not within the realm of possibility. A gun has a chain of custody that in which it goes from, you know, for, it goes from the armorer checking, checking the gun checking the blanks, going to the actor, showing the showing the uh, gun to the actor if that's what he wants to see, what's actually loaded. It's impossible. This is, no, it's not possible. We're also waiting, of course, for the investigators to come out and say whether they found other live rounds, because this theory just depends on the one being loaded in to sabotage things. But if, if they find more and they were saying that they suspected that there are more around, well, then that just points to the idea of a, a really sloppy and, and unsafe operation to add to the list of things that shouldn't be happening sure and it's just like and it, and it also you know whether it was one live round or 10 or more uh, a live bullet does not look the same as a blank they look similar but if you're an armor you're trained specifically to recognize the difference and there's you know if you, there's a many different ways that a blank can uh be recognized sometimes they have a little bit of paint on them sometimes they have a d on them for dummy sometimes they have a couple of bbs inside them so you can just hear the sound when you rattle them i, I have no idea what kind they had on their set but they are not identical to real bullets and that's the whole job of an armorer is to know exactly what kind of weaponry that you have what kind of ammunition you can ha you have and how to tell the difference. It seems as if uh, just about every movie made has a gun going off. So I guess my question is, uh, what things are being done differently now? I mean, is everybody just sitting back waiting for the official investigations to come to some sort of a conclusion? Or are movie and TV sets even now taking some kind of affirmative action? Some sets are. There's already been some showrunners who say they will not, they will no longer use live guns. There's a lot more discussion about using effects um, to uh, simulate the look of a gun being fired. Um, it's going to it's going to think I think it'll be a complicated question because even though FX have improved a lot, um, it is challenging, I think, to be able to give the real look of what a gun looks like when it's fired, when the, you know, the muzzle flash goes off, you can see it in the actor's face, you can see the recoil in the body. 
those are all things that require adjustment. So I don't think there's a rush to this. The other thing is you have to remember, this is such an anomaly. This has nothing to do with the way that most sets operate. The, and you know, we'll, more will be revealed in time. There's already been, as you said, many, many rumors that have come out uh, around this, but there is a whole series of errors that had to happen for any of this to take place. Dana Harris-Bridson, Editor-in-Chief of IndieWire. Thanks. You know that glass of red wine you have waiting when you get home to have for dinner because it's going to make you healthier it's and live healthy. longer? They say you'll live they to 100. Say, yeah, well, uh, maybe not. When we come back, we'll tell you why. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The conventional wisdom for years has been the glass of red wine a day, beneficial for your heart's health. And, uh, you know, moderate drinking, not too much, just, you know, the yeah. one a day thing would be good for you in the long run. Absolutely, yeah. Just have a drink, have a whiskey, whatever. Um, however, there's oh, a new oh, study. There's an however. I know. The conventional wisdom might be wrong. Uh, there's a new study from Germany that suggests, uh, yeah, this could not be what we thought. Adam Shirk is a fellow at the Canadian Institute for Substance uh, Research. Adam, thanks for being with us. So, yeah, I mean, as Mike just said, uh, I mean, it's been years now where people have been told, you know, it's probably not a bad thing if you want to just in moderation have a glass of, of wine maybe a few times a week at dinner. It's going to be good for your your heart. It's going to be good for some other parts of your body. Uh, not necessarily true. I know, and thanks for having me today. Um, this is kind of one area where, you know, I, I work in alcohol research and, and for years we've, we've been saying this. Um, it's kind of something where the media kind of picks up particular stories, um, particular, uh, you know, particular studies that might show that, that a little bit of alcohol might be good for you. But probably for the last 10 years, something like this, researchers have kind of been pretty unified um, in saying that, that alcohol is going to cause harm. You know, there's not really any level that that's safe to drink. Okay, so yeah, let's pick this apart because obviously heavy drinking bad, uh, moderate. Uh, maybe we have questions, but the one now and then does that even cause harm? Because I guess maybe the thought that that you know when the stories and the headlines picked up on it was almost like not drinking ever at all, total abstinence versus the glass of wine now and then, the glass of now, wine now and then people, they'd be doing better than your your non-drinking group. So take me through those. Yeah, sure. So um, one thing that that study and others have kind of found is that people that don't drink at all, as a group, not any individuals, but, but people that abstain completely from alcohol, they often tend to have um, other health issues. In fact, that may have been why they gave up drinking. You know, they might have drank previously in their life, and then they given up drinking because some some health issues have started to kind of snowball on them. So that group, again, overall, when we look at everybody, the group of abstainers is is less healthy than people that drink a little bit, and that makes it kind of hard for us to do studies in this space because um, we're comparing people that drink a little bit, they tend to have good habits like exercise, this sort of thing, comparing those to, to a group of abstainers that, that on the whole, again, is, is a little bit uh, less healthy. So it's kind of difficult to tease out, but um, most of the science is showing now that, you know, in terms of your physical health, alcohol is going to be harmful. Um, a little bit now and then, you know, it's not going to cause too much harm, everything in moderation. Um, but but you don't want to be having the kind of two or three drinks per day type of thing that that's going to have a 
a pretty significant adverse impact on our health. Well, all right. So, so let's bring down the, instead of two or three a day, uh, there are a lot of people who are doing, you know, one a day. Uh, they have it with dinner or, you know, I know a few people for breakfast. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you see those people in the airport almost all the time. Time does not exist in airports. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, I mean, what about one a day? One a day, and um, we're working right now to make new uh, low-risk drinking guidelines for, for Canada and based in Canada. Around one drink per day is, is likely kind of where these guidelines will fall. Now, it doesn't mean there's no risk there, but it means, you know, the risk is pretty low. So so one drink a day is the type of thing that, that that's, uh, you know, we might kind of recommend or put forward as, as low risk, but not no risk drinking guidelines. You said earlier, you know, some of the low drinkers already have better habits that those maybe sometimes go hand in hand. Because if you had the glass of wine with dinner the night before, maybe you're having an okay diet, you're eating good, and then you're going to go for the run the next day. And all that can kind of be your your habit. That's like your lifestyle. Right, that's exactly true. So some of some of these things kind of go hand in hand. Um, one One thing that you know, any of us that have kind of had had more than three or four on one occasion can say, we can all kind of get behind the unified thing that we we don't want to do that. You know, it, it really increases our risk of injury. And then it increases those chronic health conditions over time, like cancer. Alcohol causes a significant cancer load in both the U.S. and in Canada, where I'm from. Um, so, you know, both both this kind of chronic consumption, so two or three drinks per day, or kind of binge or heavy drinking episodes over your life course. Those are, those for, for the binge, it'll increase your risk of injury, of course, and then both of those things will increase our risk of chronic harms like cancer and heart disease. Now, by the way, I mean, we, we have been talking for the most part now about that glass of wine a day, but what about, uh, you know, beer or a, a gin and tonic or something? Does that change? Well, there's always like the grandma in the news story that says, I have a glass of bourbon every night and I'm 105, right? Yeah. <laughs> One thing that kind of pushes against it to go to that story about the grandma is, is these kind of anecdotes, you know. So if we think about cigarettes, too, we all know someone that smoked two packs a day, but they live to be 105. So we really need to think like past individuals, because there's always there's always individuals that, that can do things that are unlikely and think about populations of people, you know, of course, on, on average among the population, smoking two packs a day or drinking two drinks a day is unhealthy. Um, and then to your other point, um, just kind of thinking about our, our drinking and as a society over time, you know, it's, it's something where we, we've kind of had a reckoning with, uh, with tobacco, um, particularly around the cancer load, but we haven't had that same reckoning with alcohol. So um, there is a clear link, um, like with tobacco, between alcohol and cancer. And that's something that's not particularly well known among drinkers. Um, so it's something that, you know, as, as researchers are trying to do a better job getting that information out to people. Did the red wine thing just come from from people perceiving some benefits or, or saying, oh, it's got to have antioxidants or, or something? Yeah, it has to do with this um, kind of Mediterranean lifestyle. So uh, we can think about, you know, people in Spain or in France, um, they're kind of like having a, a, a drink of wine with dinner like you were describing. Um, there's not really a difference between the beverage classes. So beer, alcohol or beer, wine and uh, hard liquor, you know, what we're looking at that's really going to cause those harms is the ethanol, the pure alcohol in it. Uh, so one drink of, of any class, you know, kind of boils down to the same thing, the, the ethanol, the pure alcohol in the drink.
pick your poison, as they say. Adam Shirk, fellow with the Canadian Institute for Substance Research. Adam, thanks. Charles. Yeah, before we uh, uh, close the show today, just a, a word about uh, a colleague of uh, ours at KNX, Ron Kilgore. Uh, Ron uh, was a long time uh, KNX reporter and anchor. In fact, uh, when we started this program in depth uh, several years ago, uh, he was uh, the original co host with me, uh, Ron was. Uh, always a professional, always uh, an absolute uh, gentleman. Ron Kilgore died this morning. Uh, he was 71 years old. He is survived by his wife, Carol. They were married for 46 years. Uh, also, uh, his daughter and uh, two grandkids as well. So our thoughts are with his family, Ron Kilgore, who died this morning. That's in-depth for today. Back tomorrow at 1 p.m.